A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. He went to every producer in Manhattan, hoping one of them would give him a chance. But to no luck. Broadway World. Larson was not musically inclined, but he says he was inclined to like music. He was a Navy man turned subscription company owner in the New York City suburb of White Plains. It was the early 60s, and he and his wife Nanette played a lot of folk tunes and opera throughout their home. And it wasn't long before their two children started singing along. So when their kids got a little older, Alan and Nanette loaded the two of them into the car to make the one-hour trip into the city. Because integral to a well-rounded musical education was the Broadway. Plus, it was practically on their doorstep. The Larsons went to see 1776, Fiddler on the Roof, Hair, and Jesus Christ Superstar. And the kids were enamored. As soon as they'd get home, they'd rummage through their parents' record collection and pull out the soundtracks to Follies or West Side Story, replaying the songs over and over, singing along, and performing the scenes in between. And it was then that the youngest, Jonathan Larson, 
decided he wanted to become an actor. By his teens, Larson was the star of every single White Plains High School production. The entire neighborhood would file into the gym to see him star in the latest Stephen Sondheim smash, his parents beaming in the front row. After school, he'd engage in a little night music. He'd throw on Elton John, Billy Joel, and the doors. His father would pound on his door, telling him to turn it down. But Larson would reply, It's no louder than you play your opera. His father said, Touché. His sister Julie explained in the documentary No Day But Today that their parents wanted nothing but for their children to be completely and unapologetically themselves. And for Jonathan Larson, that meant a Sondheim-worshipping, Pete Townsend-blaring theater school nerd with a dream of one day seeing his name in lights. He joined the school band, the chorus. He played the trumpet. He learned the tuba. He took piano lessons. And upon graduation, Larson earned himself a full four-year scholarship to Adelphi University's conservatory program on Long Island, where he'd be an acting major. At Adelphi, Larson signed up for all the plays. A classmate later said Larson was the top acting student because he could make a mountain of even the mole-hilliest of roles. He regaled his family and friends with his adventures at college through letters home that were covered in exclamation points, scribbled on piano key stationery. He started gravitating more toward comedic parts, like Malvolio in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Then he discovered Cabaret. Supposedly cabaret at Adelphi meant raunchy, skit-style performances in the school cafeteria. But they had one other marked distinction from the department's staged productions. They were very politically driven. Larson was also very politically driven. Social issues, particularly those pertaining to equality, were often at the forefront for him as an artist. So the cafeteria cabaret was a natural fit. Then one day, the head of the theater department asked Larson if he would write the music for an original school production. And in that moment, his creative world exploded. Soon, Larson graduated and was off to New York City. But not to become an actor like he planned. To become a Broadway composer. When Larson told his family he was pivoting from his acting ambitions, his sister said it was traumatic for all of them. They loved seeing him perform. It was a loss they'd all need to grieve. He moved into an apartment at Greenwich and Spring Streets in Lower Manhattan. It was a fifth-floor walk-up, which in itself isn't that unusual. But what was unusual was that his building didn't have a buzzer. So if you were to go over to Casa Larson, you would have to call him from the payphone across the street, let him know you were there, then have him throw the keys out the window from five stories up. His close friend said it was maybe the dingiest walk-up in the city. They couldn't believe it was still upright. It had a distinct 
odor. It was freezing cold. All the furniture had been found off the street. You could barely squeeze through the hallways. And the bathtub was in the kitchen, which no doubt kept mornings interesting between Larson and his various roommates. To pay his rent, Larson took a job at a greasy spoon in Soho called the Moondance Diner. He could have gotten another job, a steady nine-to-five at a desk somewhere, but he wanted something with flexibility. You see, Larson discovered that if he worked long hours Friday through Saturday, he could make enough tips to take Monday through Thursday off. But off didn't mean not working. On those days, he would sit at his tiny table in his tiny window of his tiny apartment and write for eight hours straight, composing a musical. It was at 3 a.m. alone singing a cappella and envisioning his name in a playbill that he was happiest. Sometimes patrons or new waiters at the diner would ask Larson about his life, so he'd tell them he was a composer. They'd smile and nod then roll their eyes. The truth was, Larson had only his conviction to back up that statement. A true composer probably made a living, or at least some money, off composing. Larson would write music, send it to theater, television, and film producers, and get back rejection letters. In the doc No Day But Today... A close friend of Larson's said the then-20-something would go door-to-door to to every person of influence in Manhattan. He'd leave no stone unturned trying to get one single human to pop in his tape or read three pages of a script. But it was the early 80s. Les Mis and Cats were lighting up the city's marquees. And Larson's style was, well, not that. He wanted to inject Broadway with a little MTV, bring Kurt Cobain to the theater district. Because he believed if young people didn't start lining up for tickets, his beloved art form might die. But he faced nothing but rejection. To keep the lights on, Larson pitched little ditties to children's shows like Sesame Street. And some of his songs made it into the series. So he worked on other children's show ideas, one of which actually got produced. But it wasn't long before his father back in White Plains started getting phone calls, both from Larson looking for a loan to tide him over to the next Moondance Diner paycheck, and from collections agencies. Larson's parents' friends started asking them how long their son would go on living this bohemian lifestyle. The truth was, their son's happiness was their number one priority. But his mother did have one concern. He was weaving through crazy Manhattan traffic all day on his bicycle, no doubt pitching his work or hiding from his landlord. And as time passed, Larson started to wonder if maybe the people at the diner and his parents' friends were right. Maybe he was just a waiter. Maybe that's all he'd ever be. Larson made a rule for himself. He'd flex his composition muscle daily by writing a brand new song every single morning. Could be about anything, say, sugar. He'd heard Franz Schubert had done the same. 
Then he'd sing his sweet tunes to a captive audience of answering machines. The answering machines of his close friends, before requesting feedback ASAP. Aside from his family, Larson's friends were a big part of his support system. They were moon dance waiters, aspiring actors, fellow creative types who championed him, even set up and attended readings of his latest work. Every year, around the holidays, Larson would hold what he called a peasant's feast for his family, blood-related and chosen, to show his appreciation. Despite barely having enough money to keep the refrigerator cold, he put together a potluck, provided wine, he even sent out handwritten invitations. And as all his favorite people squished into his apartment and ate their turkey with mismatched cutlery, Larson would stand at the head of the table and proudly gush about his friend's accomplishments over that year, celebrating even the tiniest of wins in their chosen fields. Then, the night would end with a quick performance or two at his keyboard, the latest development on his musical, which he'd given a name, Superbia. Larson was fascinated by George Orwell's 1984, and that very year was coming up. So Larson wrote The Orwell Estate, seeking permission to adapt the famed novel into a musical. But his request was rejected outright. So Larson wrote a science fiction musical set in 2064. It forecasted an ominous future where screens dominated the culture, a cautionary tale on the impacts of technology, and, some would later argue, not all that far off. The music would be new wave, very synth-heavy. Larson wrote seven drafts of Superbia. He applied for grants to help fund the dystopian musical. Then one night, he decided to do something truly crazy. He sent a sample to Stephen Sondheim. By the late 80s, Sondheim had written the music for West Side Story, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Follies, A Little Night Music, Sweeney Todd, and his latest work, Into the Woods. The New York Times refers to the late great Sondheim as a titan of the American musical. To sum up, he wasn't someone you just wrote up asking for advice. But Larson had the utmost respect for his idol, coupled with a healthy dose of confidence in himself. So, he did. And in the summer of 1990, Larson received a letter in the mail. The legend himself had taken the time to look over the work of one Jonathan Larson and offered him a letter of recommendation. It read, To whom it may concern, this is to recommend most highly Jonathan Larson, an extremely talented composer and lyricist. He deserves every support he can be given. Yours truly, Stephen Sondheim. The boy who once wore out his parents' West Side Story record couldn't believe his eyes. But that wasn't the only piece of exciting mail Larson would receive regarding Superbia. 
The American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers had chosen Larson for a grant to help fund his musical. It was only $100, but between that and Sondheim's support, Larson was flying. So he put on a workshop for Superbia, essentially a low-to-no-budget performance in front of industry folk in the hopes of sparking interest, connections, advice, or financing. The night of the workshop said industry folk filed in, including a face Larson recognized. Stephen Sondheim showed up to Larson's play. But according to the New York Post, after the show that night, producers told Larson his play was too big for off-Broadway and too advanced for Broadway. Sondheim said he thought the score was impressive. The script, however, was, quote, unresolvable. The crowd didn't get it either. Larson's sister said he was devastated. The musical Larson had been working on for seven years was completely rejected. And we'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Larson went back to the drawing board, or should I say the keyboard? 
With Superbia's less-than-superb feedback, he suddenly had an inordinate amount of time on his hands, and mounting frustration begging to make its way onto a page. So Larson started penning his next musical. This time, it wouldn't take place in the future. It would take place present day, in his fifth-floor walk-up, in his body. A musical autobiography about a struggling composer named John. No one would be able to call this play too big. It would be a one-man show. On page four of the script, Larson wrote, I have rejection letters from every major and minor producer, theater company, record label, and film studio in existence. And in just over a week, I will be 30 years old. Older than Stephen Sondheim was when he wrote the music for West Side Story. Older than Paul McCartney when he wrote his last song with John Lennon. In eight days, my youth will be over forever. And what exactly do I have to show for myself? He called it 3090, because he was turning 30 in 1990. And he'd punctuate his story with rock songs. Larson invited one of his closest friends over one night to listen to the first iterations of his one-man show. She said the songs were fantastic, but, quote, brimming with anger and disappointment. So she asked him, with so much rejection already, why, why did he want to keep writing? Larson was taken aback by the question. The next morning, he called her. Overnight, he'd written a song called Why?, The lyrics explain that he was happiest when he was composing, and even if his musicals never sold a single ticket, he couldn't imagine doing anything else with his life. Larson would rename 3090 and call it Boho Days. Boho Days would be performed at the Second Stage Theater, a small non-profit theater company that presented readings of new plays by new playwrights. Larson proclaimed to the artistic director he was going to single-handedly bring rock and roll to Broadway. But after the reading, second stage dropped Boho Days. It was another rejection. No, it was a rejection of Larson's reaction piece to his last rejection. What it was, was depressing. But after the show, Larson was approached by a man from the audience. Jeffrey Seller was, like Larson, keen to break into the theater. But he wasn't a playwright or an actor. He was an aspiring producer. He told Larson he was quite taken with boho days. In fact, it brought him to tears. So he suggested the pair meet for a drink. Seller walked Larson through what he liked about his play, beat by beat, He felt it had emotional power and resonance. He thought Larson himself was insightful, perceptive, and funny. And like him, he wanted to do great things in the theater. If you recognize the name Jeffrey Seller, it may be because he would one day go on to produce Hamilton. Seller and Larson decided to keep in touch. Whatever Larson was working on next, Seller wanted to know about it.
Larson wasn't quite ready to give up on boho days, so he set up performances at the Village Gate nightclub. But during technical rehearsals, he got some devastating news. One of Larson's good friends found out they were HIV positive. Another developed full-blown AIDS. And a third, with an existing AIDS diagnosis, was getting sicker. The passage of time became more and more prevalent in Larson's life. His 30th birthday came and went. His friends were dying before his eyes. So he renamed the play again. This time, he'd call it Tick, Tick, Boom. But the feedback from his performances was that they were chaotic, the storytelling unfocused. When Tick, Tick, Boom ended its run at the village gate, the phone didn't ring. By the early 90s, over 100,000 people had died of AIDS in the United States alone. It was a crisis, one that had permeated every corner of Larson's life. And suddenly, his one-man show he wrote specifically not to be too big wasn't big enough. There were massive issues going on in the world, political issues Larson wanted to talk about. And that's when he got an unexpected phone call. A writer and producer named Billy Aronson had an interesting idea. When Puccini wrote the play La Boheme in the late 1800s, it told the story of struggling bohemians, artists and roommates, living in Paris one cold Christmas Eve, when one of them falls ill of consumption and the others, impoverished, can't save her. A musical tragedy that stood the test of time. Aronson wanted to take the famous French opera and rework it to shed light on the AIDS epidemic in New York City. The problem was, he wasn't a composer. So when Aronson broached the idea with a few of his contacts in New York, he was passed along Larson's phone number, and the pair decided to meet. What interested Larson off the bat was that the idea hinged on political causes. People were afraid to talk openly about AIDS, about gay people. And that fear, compounded by the crack epidemic and housing crisis in New York City, was impacting thousands of lives. It could also be a sort of catharsis for Larson. After losing multiple friends to the disease, he wanted a way to immortalize their stories and create an outlet for his own grief. Aronson started writing a script, and Larson got to work on the music. Then, when Larson had three songs completed, he invited Aronson over to his apartment to hear them. Aronson said as he sat down, he realized what he was about to watch was a very nervous yet very passionate rejected playwright belt out rock songs on a Casio. He thought, oh no, what if it was terrible? How would he break it to him? But as Aronson settled in, to his great relief, he loved every bar of every song. The lyrics were poignant, the tone captured the anxiety that shrouded New York City, and yet The music was cool. It was rock and roll and would appeal to the younger demographic. Though there was one problem. The songs didn't really go with Aronson's script. It was like they'd each created something great but separate, and they couldn't find a way to marry them. 
Larson and Aronson ultimately decided to part ways. But Larson wanted to continue with the show, so the pair came up with an agreement for Larson to pursue the project solo, which he did, painstakingly, for months and months. Then one afternoon, Larson was biking around the East Village when he came across the New York Theater Workshop. It was a beautiful building that staged plays in the exact neighborhood his play would be set. It was perfect, so he went inside and spoke to the artistic director. Larson handed him a demo tape and a copy of his latest script. It was titled, Rent. Rent would tell the story of one year in the lives of a group of young artists in the East Village. Bohemians struggling to make rent and survive under the shadow of HIV-AIDS, drug abuse, and political unrest, who come to realize there's no day but today. The artistic director of the New York Theatre Workshop said by the time he'd read a third of the way through the first act, he knew he was holding something special. Larson was clearly both a talented playwright and composer. So they agreed to take on his show as the New York Theatre Workshop's first ever musical. And for the first time, Larson felt seen. In March of 1993, Larson staged his first reading, and Jeffrey Seller, the budding producer who loved Larson's style, came to watch. Seller said the first couple numbers were terrific, but then it kind of dragged on. He noticed the audience started glancing at their watches. So Seller was frank with Larson. He told him the plot was convoluted. He needed to simplify it, structure it, and shorten it. That feedback stung. For another year, Larson worked on Rent. If he wasn't at the Moondance Diner, he was simplifying his show. And by the fall of 1994, Larson got a breakthrough. Rent qualified for the Richard Rogers Grant, which afforded Larson and the New York Theatre Workshop the opportunity to stage a full-on production for two weeks. With actors, a band, a director, and even a small set— It also provided a much-needed lift in Larson's spirits. So they put out a casting call, purposefully seeking unknown pop-rock voices. Edina Menzel was a wedding singer. Anthony Rapp worked at Starbucks. Adam Pascal was a personal trainer. Wilson Germain Heredia was working the graveyard shift at a realty company. But they all happened to come across the audition and decided to go for it on a whim. These unknown actors who had never met had instant chemistry. And suddenly Larson had on his hands an eclectic cast that felt like a true representation of the city. Jesse L. Martin, who would play Tom Collins, said the first song they rehearsed together was Seasons of Love. And he thought... Even if this was the only piece they performed, it would be a great show. In the fall of 1994, the new and improved Rent was staged. The director said it had a feeling of real promise and a feeling of real unfinishedness. 
but Seller was impressed. He said the play took an enormous leap from the year before. It had a plot you could follow, characters you cared about. So the next night, Seller brought along his business partner. When Seller's business partner sat down at the New York Theatre Workshop, he said, This is either going to be terrible or brilliant, and I have no idea which. But by intermission, he turned to Seller and said, Get out the checkbook. The pair found Larson backstage, and Seller's partner told him that first act was the best piece of musical theatre storytelling he'd ever seen. Then... He declared he was prepared to fund the play. Not just workshop it, but full-on produce it. Larson couldn't believe his ears. He'd never, ever heard those words before. He said, well, don't you want to see the second act first? Seller and his business partner requested that in a year and a half's time, Larson staged the full-fledged production of Rent on the New York Theatre Workshop stage. There was a lot of work still to do on the story, so Larson started making edits. Then he made the biggest change of his career thus far. He quit his job at the Moondance Diner. With his first ever funding... Larson suddenly had access to costumes, to consistent rehearsal space, to a team. He was living his dream. He couldn't wait to work with the actors, to give notes on performances, on sets, on choreography. This was his baby, and he'd waited a lifetime to watch it grow. The cast and crew became like a family, so Larson threw them one of his annual Christmas peasants' feasts. That night, he told the actors many of them were playing roles based on his friends who had passed from AIDS. It was a show about friendship and outcasts and ensuring the important people in your life are never forgotten. Larson was nervous. His sister said while it was all exhilarating, it was also terrifying. Because Larson knew if this didn't work, if he was told it was too big or too long or too weird and it failed, he'd be completely lost. In the final week of dress rehearsals, he started experiencing chest pains. So a friend took him to the hospital to get it checked out. His tests came back normal, so they chalked it up to nerves and sent him home. On January 24, 1996, after the final dress rehearsal, Larson said rent was as good as it was ever going to be. It was ready, and he was so proud. The New York Times had come to watch the rehearsal and afterward interviewed Larson. In the recording, he can be heard saying, I'm happy to say I think I have a life as a composer. He got home that night around 12.30 a.m., He flicked on the kettle to make himself a cup of tea. Then, Jonathan Larson died. Larson suffered an aortic aneurysm as a result of an undiagnosed connective tissue disease at 36 years old. 
less than 24 hours before opening night. His death was an indescribable shock to his family, his friends, and the entire theater community. The cast made its way to the New York Theater Workshop to be together and to feel close to Larson somehow. They didn't know what to do with themselves, with the play. But Alan Larson knew what to do. Through tears, he said, The show must go on. It's what his son would have wanted. That night, the cast performed Rent for close friends and family only, dedicating the performance to their fearless leader. And after the last note played, the room rose for a standing ovation. It was a memorial and a release. The next night would be their first public performance. It sold out. Then the next night, and the next night after that, all sold out. Larson's obituary ran in every major publication, drumming up even more interest in his story and his work. Between January 26th and April 1st, 1996, every show sold out. The actors themselves were forced to man the phones at the New York Theatre Workshop, taking ticket orders. And that meant there was only one logical next step. Rent would move to Broadway. Suddenly, there were massive billboards for Rent all across Manhattan, even calling the show the next hair. The actors graced the cover of Newsweek. Cher came to see Rent. Danny DeVito saw Rent. Christy Brinkley saw Rent. The Clintons saw Rent. But the cast and crew, and the Larsons, didn't want Rent to be a show just for the elite. So the producers came up with an idea to sell the first two rows of the theater for just $20 a ticket, a Broadway first. That way, people like Larson, working at the Moondance Diner, could still come see the show. And the lines for those rush tickets stretched around the block. People even pitched tents. Then came the 1996 Tony Awards. Rent won four Tonys. Best Original Score, Best Book of a Musical, Best Actor, and Best Musical. The show ran for five years, then seven years, then ten years straight on Broadway. Twelve overall. Then Rent became an international phenomenon, reaching as far as Europe, Australia, and Asia. In 2005, the play was adapted into a hit film starring many of the original cast members, all with Larson's trusted family at the wheel. And Jonathan Larson, the man with a rejection letter from every major and minor producer, theater company, record label, and film studio in existence, told his ideas were too big, too out there, too controversial, who, from his fifth-floor walk-up, wanted nothing less than to change the face of American musical theater, won a posthumous Pulitzer Prize. As his sister Julie said, every professional dream Larson had came true the day he died. He became a Broadway composer. He shed light on important issues. He brought rock and roll to the theater. 
It took him 15 years of rejection to become an overnight sensation. But boy, when he did, did it explode. Tick, tick, boom. If you're lucky, you have a dream and you have a champion. A person who supports your dream and encourages your passion, even if it seems crazy or somehow unlikely. In so many of our episodes, people wanted to pursue the arts, be it writing or acting or singing. But so often, their parents discouraged that path, or at the very least, they were skeptical of it. Often, parents pleaded with their children to study a different occupation, something that was more legitimate in their eyes. Acting or writing or composing was a hobby, not a career. But Jonathan Larson's parents were different. They completely, absolutely, and unreservedly and unconditionally supported his dream from day one. You can see it in that moment when Jonathan announced to his family that he had decided to pursue composing instead of acting. That pivot was traumatic for them. They loved seeing him perform. They were in the front row of every performance and workshop he ever did. And when he stopped acting, they said it was like a loss for them, something they had to get over. Even when his parents' friends asked how long Jonathan was going to live a bohemian lifestyle... His parents rose to his defense and said all artists have to start that way. Even through the 15 years of rejections Jonathan Larson experienced, his parents were there for him, steadfast in their support. His happiness was their number one priority. Maybe the most touching and heartbreaking moment was when Jonathan died the night before Rent opened. The greatest moment of Jonathan's life became the worst moment of his family's life. But because they loved him so much, they kept Rent alive. At every new production of Rent performed around the world, Jonathan's father, Alan, would fly to meet the cast, talk to them about his son, and sit in the front row when the curtain lifted. Rent was performed in dozens of countries over the years, and Alan Larson was there for every single opening night. Even after Jonathan Larson had died, his parents were still supporting his dream. If you're lucky, you have a dream and you have champions. If you're really lucky, their encouragement will keep you going through all the rejections and the closed doors and the setbacks. And if you're really really lucky, those champions are named Mom and Dad. Never, ever give up. Rent. Total performances, 5,123. Tony Awards, 4. Tony nominations, 10. Pulitzer Prize, 1996. Forget regret, or life is yours to miss. Jonathan Larson. Jonathan Larson.
The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. We regret to inform you, our producer is Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major source for this episode is No Day But Today, The Story of Rent. Other significant sources are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like Rejecting Stephen King from Season 1. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to end homelessness. This series is executive produced by Terrestream Captain Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. 